too cold to go skiing, huh? <laughs> so you're here? I love it. I love it. You're kind of looking outside. And I'm like, man, I don't know if anybody's going to come. And then everybody's here. And it's like, wait a minute. I get it. I get it. There's a saying in our culture that asks the rhetorical question, what hills are you willing to die on? And kind of the, the thought and the heart behind that is not every battle is a battle that we need to take on. Not every fight is worth fighting. Not everything in this world is worth dying for. Uh, this last week, I read some things in the paper and heard some conversations out around town. There's some battle lines being drawn. The name of our new high school, huh? <laughs> Not everybody's a fan of West Slope High School, obviously. I, I, I kind of giggled a little bit when I read some of the comments uh, in the newspaper article. This is what some people said. It's a ridiculous name. Students at games would be embarrassed by taunts about fish that would damage their morale. It was a horrible name and degrading to students. High school is tough enough. I started to think about uh, if a few fish taunts were the worst thing that I experienced in high school, I think I would be okay. I think I would be able to handle it. You know, it's kind of easy to to poke fun at people that are kind of up in arms or taking on that battle at something that doesn't seem like maybe that big of a thing in the grand scheme of things. But I've got to poke a little bit of fun out there because if there's any group of people that sometimes are the world's worst at doing this, it's the church. They, everything is a hill to die on. How loud the music is, how long our gatherings are, what are our service times, should a pastor wear jeans? This is my attempt to appease the non-jean people that are out there. Should a pastor have a tattoo? No, I don't have a low back tattoo. Be awesome if I did though, wouldn't it? The list goes on. The hills that people are willing to die on. But here's what I've noticed in my own life. The older I get, the number of hills that I'm willing to die on get smaller and smaller and smaller. But as a church, there are hills that we need to die on. And as we step into the scriptures today and we look at Acts chapter 15, this movement of misfits comes to a battle line that they say, this is a hill that we are willing to die on. This is worth dying for. And what happens in Acts 15 is that the leaders of this movement of misfits get together because here's the question at hand. What is the central message of our faith? What is the bullseye? They're asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian and what defines a follower of Jesus? This is important that's why the leaders of the church were gathered together. And it was an all-star cast that were there at the Council of Jerusalem. And Acts chapter, Peter was there. Paul was there. You want me to say Mary, don't you? Peter, Paul, Mary, no. Mary was not there that I know of, but her son James was there. Some of the key leaders of the church. And here's what I want us to think about, the reality that Paul was there. Because Paul, from a human perspective, he was the architect of this greatest movement of misfits that the world has ever seen. He was taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. At the time of 
Acts chapter 15, Paul was 250 miles away in Antioch. But Paul comes back to Jerusalem because this is so important. One of the early writings of Paul, one of the first letters that he wrote to any group of churches is the book of Galatians, to churches in the region of Galatia. And Paul addresses some of the issues that became issues in the council of Jerusalem. And I want to read this to you because it gives you a flavor of just how important this was to the Apostle Paul, why this mattered to him so much. What is our central message? What is the good news? What is the gospel? Galatians chapter one, starting in verse six, he says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through what? The loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends, pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. And what Paul says next just kind of stops me in my tracks. He says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Here's what we've got to understand about the Apostle Paul. He's given his life. He is risking his life to take this message of the gospel to the world because he doesn't want people to be cursed of God. He wants them to have a relationship with God. So how strongly does Paul feel about something that he says, if you twist this, if you mess this up, you should be cursed of God. Literally, you be damned if you mess up the gospel message. Could Paul be more serious than that? So we've got to ask ourselves the question, how was it that they were twisting the message of Jesus, this gospel message? And even more importantly for us, is it possible for us today to be guilty of twisting the message as well? And friends, I think it is. I think it is possible, and that's why I think it is so important for us to understand what we see happening in Acts chapter 15. And I want to set the context a little bit, if I can, to try to help us understand where these battle lines were drawn in Acts chapter 15. If we go back to the very beginning of this series, in Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and this movement of misfits was launched, the scripture says that you're gonna be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's gonna come on. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And we see the gospel message going forth. And a couple of weeks ago, Chris talked with us about one of the milestones in this movement was the realization that this movement wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for the Gentiles as well. Gentiles are included in this plan of God's redemption. But here's the thing, some of those early, some of those early Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ, 
They were actually Jewish converts. They had converted to Judaism. Sometimes the scripture called them God-fearers. So when we think about culture, they had already been circumcised. They had already decided that we're going to follow the law of Moses. So culturally, they were very similar to the Jews. But here's what was different. As Paul begins to take this message to the ends of the earth, if you were here last week, Brian talked about how Paul would oftentimes, he would start out going into the synagogues in a new city where there would be these Jewish people and these God-fearers. And he would preach this message of the good news to them. And he would find people that would find their way to Jesus, become followers of Jesus. But after that, Paul would go and he would just talk to the Gentiles at large, pagan culture. So as they came to faith in Christ, they culturally were not Jewish in any way. They were invited into the church by baptism and they were asked to become family with these people that were culturally Jewish. And that's where this battle lines began to form. There was conflict in there. And we've been talking about this idea that God wants his family to be a community, that they would be connected to one another at a deep heart level, and that their love and commitment to one another was gonna be a display for the world to understand the magnitude of what Christ had done for them. But there was conflict. There was conflict because some people were saying what needs to happen is for these Jewish, it's not baptism's not enough. They've got to be circumcised and they've got to obey the law of Moses. Now I'm imagining that you're sitting out there today thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me in any way? My hunch would be that none of you lay awake at night asking yourself, what in the world are we gonna do between this conflict in our world between the Jews and the Gentiles in our church? Nobody is thinking about that. But here's why this is important, in my opinion, is the thinking, the thinking that would create a confusion with those early Jewish believers, I think that same kind of thinking can create confusion for us as well. What is the central message of the gospel? And that's why we've got to look into Acts chapter 15 and even ask ourselves, why was this? the hill that these early leaders were willing to die on. And there's two things that we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn about the clarity of the misfit message, and we're gonna learn about the charity of the misfit message. And just to let you know, on your notes page, there's three C's. I would be way longer if we did all three, so I had to cut it. We're only gonna do two. But the first one, the clarity of the misfit message. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse one. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, remember, 250 miles away from Jerusalem, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot, cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the apostles, the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, 
including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then, but then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Game on. The battle lines were drawn. Now I want to do the best job I can to try to talk about the religious leaders with some fairness because sometimes we just kind of throw them under the boat, boat, bus. We don't throw them under boats. We throw them under buses. We're boat. We try to throw them under the bus. But I want us to understand there are reasons why they believed what they believed. Think about this. Jesus himself, the author of this movement, was Jewish. Those very first Christians and disciples, predominantly Jewish. The old covenant, people of God, the people that God used to bring Jesus into this world, his genealogy, Jewish people. Christianity was this messianic movement that was foretold long ago in the Old Testament. They were looking for the Messiah. And since Jews had always demanded in history that Gentiles that converted to Judaism, they must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. That was what they had always done. So what was confusing to them was why the sudden change? Why is everything different now? Everything was different because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. After that, everything changed. That old covenant moving away. God was establishing a new covenant, a new covenant with how he was going to relate to his people. And here's what I want you to walk away with today. I want you to understand just the simplicity or the heart of this new covenant. And I'm gonna do that with a picture. And someone jokingly said to me, all I had to do was look at the notes page and I saw a triangle and I knew you were preaching. (laughs) Yes, it's gonna be a triangle. But here's why. I want you to have this picture in your mind that the vast majority of people are visual learners. I could just explain it to you, but I want you to have this picture in your mind so that you can understand it. And not just for you to understand. You know what I would want for you? I would want you to be able to explain this to people. That you would be able to communicate it to them as well. That is the heart behind this diagram that I'm gonna use to help us understand the new covenant. This new covenant is a new way that God was going to relate to his people. He's inviting them into a relationship with him where he is our father. We are his children. He gives us that identity. He gives us an identity as a child, sons of him, daughters of him. That is the picture of the new covenant. Paul explains how How is this accomplished? In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what is it that gives us the opportunity to be that child of God? Here's what the scripture says, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God saved you, meaning he rescued us. He brought us into relationship with him. He gave us that identity. How? By his grace. 
his unmerited favor, his unmerited kindness. When? When you believed. When you put your faith and your trust in him. Paul goes on, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. That identity, it is a gift from God. You can't earn it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. That is the picture of the gospel. That is the picture of God's grace. That's what accomplishes our identity as a child of God. Not circumcision, not following the law of Moses. It is simply by God's grace. But there's a response in our life, a response as we become a child of God, as we grab this identity. Paul goes on to say that there's a response in our life, and that response is obedience. We want to follow him. Ephesians 2.10 talks about our heart response to what God has done through the gospel. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are God's masterpiece. Some translations say his workmanship. He fashioned us, he made us, and he created us anew in Christ Jesus. Saying he created us new as a child of his. We belong to him with this result so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Obedience, good things. Here's what I want us to understand. The obedience that we do, we don't do that for any other reason than gratitude because of what God has done for us at the cross. That, friends, is a picture of the new covenant. God has done something for us in Christ that we could not do for ourselves. And our heart response of gratitude for what it is that he's done causes us to want to make him our king in a way that we will follow him. We hear his voice and we follow him. Here's what was happening. Here's what was happening in that first century. Those religious leaders, they did something very different. Here's what they began to teach and to talk about. That what God primarily wants is he wants our obedience. And when they're talking about obedience, they're talking about obedience to circumcision, obedience to the law of Moses. This is what he's saying. And this is what we would call the law, or this is what we would call religion. The law says and religion says that it's my obedience that creates my identity. That's what makes me a child of God. And here's the word I want you to hear. What this means is that we can earn this. My obedience earns for me my identity. And so as Paul and those early apostles are wrestling with this, this is why they said this is a hill that we're gonna die on because this is not the message of the gospel. This is something completely different. All the ingredients are there, but if we try to go around this triangle, around the other side, we end up with empty religion, not the gospel of grace. Here's what this side says. It says, do. I am accepted by God by what I 
do. But what Paul wants us to understand is that the gospel is spelled differently. It's not just do, it's done. I am accepted, not because of what I do, but because of what he has done for me. Christ's death in my place for my sin, it is done for me. Law and religion says achieve. The gospel and grace says receive. Receive what he's done for us. This side, this is the story of the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Trying to earn something before God. But Paul says, the gospel is the story of the big train wreck that couldn't. I can't do it, but he can, and he did it for me. If we were to try to make this into an equation, for those of you that are mathematically inclined, Jesus plus what equals salvation. Here's what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. It is Jesus plus nothing. It is faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that leads us to salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Think about a conversation I had with a student a long time ago. One of my favorite things when I was on staff with crew and had the opportunity to speak at conferences was uh, in between times that you would speak, you'd have these chances to talk with students. They'd come up and they'd ask questions. That was always my favorite part because there were things that God was stirring in them and they'd just kind of open up their lives and wanted to talk about what was happening. Well, I had this opportunity. I was talking with this young man and he was not a follower of Jesus, but he was wrestling with that. He had all these questions about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And we were just talking through all of those questions. And we kind of got to the end and it seemed like he, was, he got really serious. He said, I have one more question. And he kind of leaned in. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, oh man, here we go. Hope I have an answer for him because he's probably gonna want me to explain how do we marry the sovereignty of God with the free will of man? And I'm gonna have to try to explain that in some way <laughs> to him. But he leaned forward and he said, if I choose to follow Jesus, do I need to quit smoking weed? <laughs> that was his question. How do you answer that? How should we answer that? Let me tell you this. I did exactly what you just did. So I, was, I was so geared up for a question when he said, do I have to quit smoking weed? I just laughed out loud. But here's what I said. I said, follow him. Make him your king and follow him. Learn to hear his voice and whatever it is that he tells you, follow him in obedience. Something along those lines is what I can, he will take care of that. My friend gave his life to Christ and I love it because he serves on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ still today. He's not smoking weed as far as I know. <laughs> but what do you say in moments like that? Jesus plus nothing 
equals salvation. And friends, it is so tempting to want to try to put something into that blank. But the council at Jerusalem, they came to the conclusion, we can't put anything in that blank and be true to the central message of Christianity. This is what they said in Acts chapter 15. This is their conclusion. Peter stands up and he says, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts, how? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Peter's just saying, we couldn't even keep the law of God ourselves. Why are we trying to burden other people with that? We believe. We believe that we are all saved, every one of us, the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. But it's just so tempting These leaders knew just how tempting it is to try to put something in there. We want to justify ourselves. We want to make ourselves feel like I am measuring up in some way. We want to put our performance in there, our moral record in there, this list of do's and don'ts that I've been doing and don'ting for so long. I want to be able to justify myself. Paul knew These apostles knew how tempting that was, but it is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It's always interesting when I share something like this, the kind of feedback that comes in. The question sometimes that people ask, it seems like when you're talking about, you're making it sound like obedience doesn't matter. Like I can just do whatever I want. They wanna say, Bob and Journey Church, they're just soft on sin. They're not willing to call people to obedience. Yes, obedience, yes. But I wanna say obedience, why? Why we're obedient is more important to God. I believe in sometimes that we are obedient. God wants us to be obedient to him, not out of slavery, not out of trying to earn something before him, but out of desperate gratitude for what it is that he has done for us. The grace of God, the gospel is never opposed to effort. It takes an incredible amount of effort to be a disciple of Jesus and to follow him. It's never opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Because when we think that we've earned something before God, it puts us in the position that Paul would say that we can boast. Look at what I did, God. God, you owe me. But the message of the gospel, God doesn't owe us anything, but he gave us everything in Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's the clarity of the gospel. That's what these early followers of Jesus, they banked their life on this. This is the message that we're going to proclaim and nothing else. The clarity of the message. This is the hill that we're going to die on. 
But one thing I love about Acts chapter 15 is they didn't just talk about the clarity of the gospel, they talked about the charity of the gospel, the charity of the misfit message. And when I say charity, I mean love, that this message was communicated in love. I want us to try to understand something that I think is a little bit confusing when we read Acts chapter 15, because here is what James says is the conclusion to the matter. Here's what we're gonna do. This is the gospel message, but this is what we're gonna tell the Gentiles. Verse 19, he says, so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Makes sense, right? They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the law of Moses. Instead, James says, we should write and tell them, there's four things, to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these are the laws of Moses that have been preached in the Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. I read that and I say, what? Are you, are, are you serious? You, you just went through this whole thing on this is the central message. Now you're gonna give them four things to do? And, and some of those are just kind of weird things in and of themselves. Like if, if you wanna give them something to do, just say, yeah, you don't have to do the whole law of Moses, just, just do the 10 commandments. No, this message of James here, this message of the apostles, it wasn't about the law, it was about love. It wasn't about how we're gonna try to make ourselves pleasing to God through following the law, it was about how are we gonna relate to one another because these culturally different people are now being expected to be family. And James wanted the Gentiles to understand that there's certain things that you might do as Gentiles that will be very, very difficult if you do that in the context of a Jewish community. For the sake of love, are you willing to put those things aside so that you can live in unity with one another, that you would know how to love one another well? Because even though God sat aside the old covenant, he said the law that is still in place is what we often call the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Gentiles, how do you love your Jewish neighbors? There's things that you do and choose not to do that will cause them to not be tripped up, that will allow you to live in unity. You know what's so interesting to me is that when we go to the very next chapter, Paul takes this principle and in my mind, he takes it to the nth degree. He finds himself meeting a young man named Timothy. And Timothy was a great young guy. Paul wanted to raise him up as a leader, so he wants to invite him on his, uh, his church planting that he's doing. Here's the deal with Timothy. His mom was a Jew. His dad was a Gentile. Timothy was not circumcised. But Paul knows if he's on my team, we're gonna be going around and we're gonna be talking to lots of Jewish people. There's gonna be the opportunity for Jewish people to get distracted and concerned about the fact that he is not circumcised. So what does Paul do? He says, Timothy, I want you to be circumcised. And he did it. I'm just thinking, if I'm Timothy, I'm gonna be like, um, Paul, I, I got a question. R remember how the council at Jerusalem, how vehement you were arguing 
that we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to follow the law of Moses. Paul would look at Timothy and just say, yes, that is true. But we love people. We love the Jews. This will be a distraction of us trying to communicate to them the greatest message that's ever been pronounced. For the sake of love, Timothy, will you be circumcised? And he did. I want us to understand Paul's heart. I want to allow scripture to interpret scripture because Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter nine what's happening in his heart when he thinks about why he would do something like that. Ask Timothy to be circumcised. Verse 19, he says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I lived under the law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. It's Paul's heart of love. Verse 21, he also says, but when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. I obey the law of Christ, the new covenant. When I am with those who are weak, I share in their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. I try to find common ground with everyone. Doing everything I can to save some. I do everything. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. This week as I was reflecting on that, just that last comment of Paul, I do everything. Paul was willing to do whatever it took to create common ground, to build a bridge to anyone and everyone so that they could hear and to know the greatest news ever announced. I began to ask myself, God, do I do everything? And just as I sat there and prayed across the screen of my mind, I just started to see people, people that I know, people that I see in coffee shops, people that I see at the gym. It's like, Lord, everywhere around town, Lord, do I do everything I can to build a bridge, to create common ground? so that I could share the greatest news ever announced. That's what drove the Apostle Paul. And Journey, if we are gonna be the church that I believe God wants us to be, that needs to be our heart as well. I do everything. I do everything to build a bridge to everyone. And I don't bring something that is a burden to people. The gospel is not a burden. The gospel is a gift. The gospel isn't a burden. It actually lifts burdens. It lifts the burden of guilt. It lifts the burden of shame. It lifts the burden of regret. It lifts the burden of fear. I don't have to fear the future. I don't have to fear what God thinks of me. He's already declared what he thinks of me. He sees me as a son. He sees me as a daughter. 
I don't have to prove myself to people because God has proved me worthy because of what he has done for me. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. I wanna just ask you to set your things aside and would you just take some time right now to just ask God if there would be anything that he would wanna speak to you, anything that he's saying to you anything that he would be asking you to do. Imagine in a a group this size that there might be those that are here that are saying to themselves, I don't know that I've ever put my faith and my trust in Jesus in that way trusting him with my life, trusting him with my future, throwing myself at the grace of him. I wanna just give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And you can do that simply as expressing your heart through this prayer that I'm gonna pray. And you can just pray this in your own heart and life as an indicator that God is nudging you, inviting you into that relationship. You can pray in this way. God, thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for breaking down all the barriers that stand between me and you through what you and your son did on the cross. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin and my guilt and my shame. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you didn't wait for me to get it all together, but you moved toward me. And I just want to humbly respond to you today by moving toward you. Jesus, I declare today, I need you. I open my life to you and I receive you today as my King and my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me eternal life. I wanna turn from my sin today I want to follow you with everything that I've got. Take control of my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.